Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. Cloudy skies, welcome to this Tuesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, Youssef Salam, a member of the Exonerated Five, reflects on current protests, the shooting death of Rayshard Brooks, and policing reform. How did we get to this place we have to go all the way back and we have to connect all of the dots in order, to, in order to understand that it's more than just retraining. It's more than just having a conversation with your officers. It's more than just saying we have black cops and black officers in our community. I mean, the thing is, yes, the people who, who, who volunteer to protect and serve your community, that is a sacred position. And they don't come to it with that thought in mind. But that is a sacred position. You are holding the souls and the lives of the people who you care for in your hand. And I tell you, what we've seen has been other than that. That conversation coming up a little later on Closer Look. Meanwhile, the family of Rayshard Brooks addressed the media yesterday. Brooks' widow, Tamika Miller, spoke while holding the couple's youngest daughter. No, there's no justice that can ever make me feel happy about what's been done. I can never get my husband back. I can never get my best friend. I can never tell my daughter, oh, he's coming to take you skating or swimming lessons. So... It's just going to be a, a long time before I heal. It's going to be a long time before this family heal. And I just, like I said, I'm just thankful for everything that everyone is out there doing. And I just ask that if you could just keep it as a peaceful protest, that would, that would be wonderful. Because we want to keep his name positive. Now the family's attorney, Chris Stewart, said he is waiting for Fulton County District Attorney Paul Howard to file charges against the officer who shot Brooks. That officer is Garrett Roth, who has been fired, and Officer Devin Bronson has been placed on administrative duty. In a press conference also yesterday, Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottom spoke of Rayshard Brooks' killing. It pissed me off. It makes me sad, and and I'm frustrated. I mean, it's, it's, you know. The mayor went on to say several administrative orders are coming to reform the police department's policies regarding standard operating procedures and use of force. Also, an ordinance to decriminalize victimless minor offenses and an ordinance prohibiting the Atlanta Police Department from using, quotes, military-style vehicles and banning the use of rubber bullets and stun grenades to disperse protesters. Now we'll hear more about this in just a moment when Atlanta City Council member Antonio Brown joins the program. This is Closer Look. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. As mentioned earlier, Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms has announced she signed a series of administrative orders to adopt and implement reforms to the police department's use of force. Now, this, of course, is related to this past weekend's police shooting death of Rayshard Brooks. The officer who shot Brooks, Garrett Roth, has been fired, and Officer Devin Bronson has been placed on administrative duty. 
Are these new administrative orders the first step in addressing the many, many demands of the community? And can the city council play a more active role in ensuring the implementation of these measures? Well, joining me now is Atlanta City Council member Antonio Brown, who represents District 3, which includes the Vine City and English Avenue neighborhoods. Councilmember Brown, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure to see you. You all had a very, very long council meeting Monday. Uh, It was filled with calls for immediate action. There was frustration, uh, accusations of failed leadership. I want to begin there because I do want to play this exchange. So take a listen. You know, I I, you were the first mayor I ever voted for. I've always respected you. I've always supported you, you know, and as much as people try to put it seem like I'm against, I'm not. I just want this city to move forward, and I want us to make sure we don't have to lose another unarmed black man city. It's unacceptable. Well, let me let me just um, correct you on a couple of things. You may have seen a picture behind me. See me. You may you may have seen a picture with me behind the barricade, but you obviously did not see the picture of me walking with the demonstrators. Secondly. Um, as it relates to Jimmy Atchison specifically, um, when he was killed, we took the unprecedented step. And I, I don't know if you were on council then or not, but we immediately removed our officers from the federal task force because they would not allow our officers to wear body cams. That investigation, along with the um, decisions surrounding, uh, surrounding Mr. Kane, remain with the district attorney's office. That became a GBI investigation and remains with the district attorney's office. So I I understand your frustration, Mr. Brown, um, because we all share it. Um, But I simply asked a question in response to a call that I saw that you had made for everyone's resignation. And the question simply was, was it going to begin with yours? Thank you for answering. Yes, and I, and I think as the leader of the city, it should it should probably begin with yours because it's obvious that you're focusing more on your national platform than you care about this city. You know, you're sitting here on all of these news networks while your city is burning to the ground because you're not doing what you should be doing as a leader in this city. And that's and I understand that you were that you were on MSNBC earlier today. Now, Councilmember Brown, I do realize that there were some apologies afterwards. Was this just moments of frustration between you and the mayor and everything that's happening? But I'll let you respond now to that whole exchange. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 exactly what you said, Rose. Um, you know, we're all frustrated. We're all frustrated. We're tired. We're hurting. You know. I've been on the front lines for 15 days straight in this city, marching with our people, our young people, listening to their cries for action, their cries to be heard, you know? And, you know, I, I, I still feel the exact same way. You know, the reality is, is we're all accountable for the black lives that have been lost in this city. My tweet, I was speaking from the context of a hyperbole mm-hmm. that, Listen, it's not just Chief Shields, you know, it's all of us because we could have been passed legislation through council to start taking necessary action to address the use of excessive force and police brutality. It didn't take another black life to be lost for that to happen. You feel the city, the city council, including yourself, you all failed the community and failed Rayshard Brooks. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. We absolutely did leadership in this city failed these families you know it wasn't just chief shields you know it was all of us you know because you know i came onto council roads a year ago april 22nd made a year ago i introduced legislation uh, ordinance to um hold officers accountable that did not have their body cameras on we struggled to get that legislation introduced and, and, and even voted on on council because of, unfortunately, the politics involved in our infrastructure at City Hall. You know, and that's unfortunate. You know, these are human lives we're talking about. 
Mayor Bottom says a national search will take place for the city's next police chief. Are you in favor of bringing someone from outside of the APD ranks or you feel there may be candidates within the department? Because if we're going to talk about changing culture, I'd like to get your thoughts on where that leadership should come from. Do you think it could currently be within APD? I believe that the next chief of our Atlanta Police Department, I don't care where they come from. What what I care about is what they believe in. What I care about, are we gonna truly look at public safety reform where it's a reflection of community policing, Rose? I worked with Chief Shields to install one of the first ever community policing initiatives on MLK and Lowry, where we have foot patrols and bicycle patrols building relationships with the community, reinstalling trust with the community. We reduce crime in 90 days by 57%. So what I care about is how are you bringing community into the conversation, into the decisions of how we reform public safety moving forward? And what does that look like? How do we fund PAD, pre-arrest diversion? How do we expand the organization and fund them where they are a non-policing force that can come and divert individuals from coming in contact with our criminal justice system and help move them into services and support. Let me ask you this. With these additional actions and recommendations, and including the task force, but Councilmember Brown, are these significant steps in addressing not only APD's use of force, their practices, and standard operating procedures, but as you know, as you just said, it needs to go beyond that. Is this a, enough in terms of being the first step? Because there are a lot of demands from the community. There are a lot of demands within the officers from their side. Is this the first step in addressing all of this? Is there anything missing within those administrative orders she assigned? Well, let me just say this. I think the beauty of this, Rose, it's not just the mayor that's taking first steps in addressing what's happening in the city. Last night at one in the morning, I introduced legislation that would ban the usage of rubber bullets, the ground grenades, militarized equipment from being used on protesters, including the limitation of tear gas. I also introduced the eight can't wait. That, that is going before our committees next week. Measures that we can utilize around de-escalation tactics, around mental health evaluations, around banning the use of force where we could really, like Rayshard Brooks is a perfect example. We should have been able to come up to that brother Rose and say, hey, I know you, Rayshard. Let me call you a Uber, mm -hmm. right? So we're introducing measures. And not only that, but Chairwoman I introduced a paper yesterday holding 50% of the APD budget until we can get action and, 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 and not just us talking about action, but tangible action, purposeful action around public safety reform, where we are holding officers to a much higher standard around how we police our communities and how are we addressing mental health evaluation, homeless, how are we addressing all of these things that play a role in public safety in this city? And before I let you go, Councilmember Brown, let's talk about the officers. Reports are morale is low. There are reports that eight APD officers have resigned since June 1st. What do you see needs to happen for the officers, for their needs and their concerns? The officers need counseling. I mean, they experience trauma every day. They see deaths. They, they, they are involved in some of the most hostile environments and conditions. They need mental health evaluations. We need to provide them counseling. We need to support them too. Not every officer is a bad officer. Not every officer is out here killing unarmed black lives. So it's important that we begin to speak truth to the to power and recognize that, you know, we all have to come together. We all have to work so that we can build a better Atlanta for tomorrow for our children's children. Atlanta City Council Member Antonio Brown, who represents District 3. Councilmember Brown, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Rose, you have my heart. I'm so grateful for you and your entire team. Thanks for always thinking of me. Thank you, sir. Take care now. All right. You too.
Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on Atlanta's NPR station, 90.1 WABE. I'm Rose Scott. De-escalation in law enforcement. By definition, it means reducing of the intensity of a conflict or potentially violent situation. So now we pick up part two of a conversation with two veterans of federal law enforcement, both who now work in security services, policy and procedure reviews, and training. First up, Ray Moore is the owner of Moore & Associates. It's a security consulting firm. And also, he's a former member of the Secret Service and Presidential Detail. Also joining the conversation is Douglas Shipley. He's a retired supervisory special agent with the FBI. He also served as the acting assistant special agent in charge of the Atlanta Division. Agent Shipley also has experience in training and development with local and federal law enforcement. What goes into effective de-escalation training? Before we even talk about how an officer should, should take that training, and turn it into effective execution. I think you go back to um, that self-reflection and it comes back to um, uh, an awareness of who you are, how you think, what you think, and how you come across to other people. Um, People are using emotional intelligence nowadays. They're talking about these emotional intelligence kinds of things. And it basically boils down to that. This is before um, we ever even used the term or knew the term emotional intelligence. But to be able to have a conversation with somebody and recognize what you are saying to them, what they are hearing and what they are not hearing from you. So it's a a communication thing. So when you're talking about a de-escalation training, you have to start with the basics. And that is listening skills and communication skills Um, in order to be able to de-escalate you have to be aware of where you are in that conversation and how you're contributing to that conversation. If both of us come in with some kind of a preconceived bias, the police are only here to, to hurt me, and Black people or people of color or big thugs and, and beasts and, and, and or superhuman, we've come in to the whole conversation with bad information and it's going to go badly. Is that something that you relay to the officers in training? Did you all talk about that? Back when I was doing training, we talked about it. Again, we didn't, I didn't necessarily talk about de-escalation. I just talked about communication. Mm-hmm. And I was a big proponent of communication. Um, when I was a police officer, I was a 150-pound uh, buck-wet uh, police officer, and I was too small <laughs> to sit around and think about beating somebody down. Um, And so I use that philosophy when I talk to people, Um, people much larger than I, groups of people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they would tell you that Doug Shipley knows how to listen to what's going on and be able to take that and move forward. Agent Moore, what about you? How do you define effective de-escalation training? Exactly as how Doug defined it, it's very important to listen to listen to people and again, to be able to communicate effectively. I always tell my daughters when they're having a discussion, God gave you two ears and one mouth so you can listen more with both those ears and talk less out of that one mouth. Um, On many occasions, I encounter situations when we were out effecting um, arrest warrants where the suspect would get belligerent, would start screaming, didn't understand why he had to be taken. And all it is is time. You're not on a time clock. You're not speed arresting. So therefore, if you take time to calmly explain to them, you know, somebody may be concerned about, it may be a Wednesday or a Thursday, they may be concerned about being in jail over the weekend. And as long as you can explain to them, if we arrest you by noon, you're going to see a magistrate 
this afternoon, you can get a bun this afternoon or tomorrow, so you will be home. Mm -hmm. But if, if you take your time and explain it to them, it, it calms them down. But if you don't, you just come in overly aggressive, um, it, it keeps everybody's adrenaline up. So you've got to be able to communicate with people, get them to understand where you're coming from. And 90, 98% of the time when I worked on cases like that, um, we were able to calm the person down, calm the situation down. And some even became advocates um, for us. And as Doug said, we were not using the term de-escalation. We were just talking about effective communication. Have either of you viewed the video footage or the body camera footage of what happened involving Rayshard Brooks here in Atlanta? Either one? Yes. I think everybody's seen um, the footage that's been shown um, relative to um, what happened to the, you're, you're speaking of the individual at, at Wendy's. Mm -hmm. Yes. Right. What'd you make of that? Just through your lens in terms of, and I don't know how much you saw, uh, because it is very clear in the first 28 minutes, roughly 26 to 28 minutes, the conversation is cordial, respectful. And then at the attempt of the arrest, that's when everything else occurred. Uh, it's hard to, to, as we say, Monday morning quarterback all of this, but Agent Shipley, what you viewed so far, was it excessive oh. in terms of the shooting? <clears throat> I, I don't want to get into whether or not I think it was excessive. Let me tell you the way I look at things. I, I look at, you, you mentioned the first minutes of the conversations and, and whatever. Um, that's kind of the, the time frame that law enforcement should and was probably already making decisions as to what was going to happen to that individual, whether or not he was going to be arrested, sent on his way, et cetera. Once you've made a decision to, to arrest, um, you, you, you go ahead and affect that arrest. And I'm not saying I, I don't know the whole parameters of what they did, how they did it, and all that kind of thing. I just know that at some point, um, that should not have escalated to that point. But that said, officers should always recognize that when you get ready to put handcuffs on somebody, that is a critical time. That is a time that that person who was cooperative may not be cooperative anymore. And so you need to prepare for that. Um, I used to say that people who were intoxicated, and again, I don't know whether or not this individual was intoxicated or not. But people that are intoxicated and asleep wake up one of two ways. They wake up belligerent or they wake up kind of slow and stupid. So when I would look at that situation, I would think, what do I need to do to make sure that I am safe, this individual is safe, and I start preparing my mind for those kinds of things. And that's all I'll say on that. I don't, I don't know about the excessive force. I don't know about the shooting. I don't know those details, and I don't want to even get into to that. Agent Moore, your assessment? Again, I, I would agree with um, Mr. Shipley. Um, when, you, when you first see the tape and the officer goes up and knock on the window, it takes him a while to alert the gentleman to what's going on. And he really takes a lot of time, and he's for me, that's sort of like in the de-escalation de mode right there. He's in that, he's in that zone. He uh, gets an agreement from the subject and that he's going to pull into the parking space. He walks back to his car and he waits a minute and the guy doesn't move. He goes back to his car and encourages him to pull into the space. And at the initial, the second encounter, the young man didn't even realize he had been aw awakened mm -hmm. the first time. Um, and so, again, he waited and the young man subsequently pulls into the parking space, but I think he pulls way in. Mm -hmm. He pulls way in. And um, I stopped watching it there. And then I, I've seen um, the altercation, that component, um, when that started. Um, when he failed the breathalyzer, I don't know where discretion, like Doug will say, where does arrest discretion come into place? Mm -hmm. If he fails the breathalyzer, then he's intoxicated. Then do you have to arrest him? But then that's all, again, that goes back to uh, police protocol, what they've decided in APD, what they do in those situations. And, and we should note, 
and everyone can go back and view this. He says, I'll walk. My sister is near. My sister's house is right there. I just want to go. I, I can walk. There's been speculation that could they have maybe even taken him to his sister's? You know, that's, again, speculation. There's a lot of this could have happened, that could have happened. But you're saying it also goes back to understanding the situation the officer's in, and are you using this de-escalation mentality throughout this whole process? Because one will argue 28 minutes into this interaction, everything is cool and calm. But then in, in a minute later, Mr. Brooks is, is shot and killed. If I may, Doug, jump in on this one. If if we ask ourselves the question, again, if we we're Monday, Monday, Monday morning quarterbacking, and it just so happened to be Monday, um, if they would have said, if I'm going to, can I walk myself home? And the officers say, yes, but we know he he was intoxicated based based on the breathalyzer, and, and that can be argued. You, you let him walk home. Um, say if he falls asleep on his way home mm-hmm. and gets hurt, then the liability goes back on the police officers. Sometimes it goes back to, again, and Doug and I, we can talk uh, extensively about community policing. If you build these relationships, like you said, if they would have said, okay, man, we'll take you home and drop you off at your sister's house. um, That could have been a great thing. But again, that's Monday morning quarterbacking of a scenario. And let me, let me jump in too. Like Ray was saying, I don't know APD's policies. I don't know what their processes and procedures are. Mm-hmm. There might be a, a APD policy that says, once an officer is aware of X, Y, and Z, these things must occur. 28 minutes, I've already decided what I'm going to do with that individual, probably. I've already made Uh, my calculations. I've already thought about the procedural processes and all of those other things. And so 28 minutes in, and I'm having a fairly decent rapport with that person, I think I could have probably gotten them into handcuffs at that point. Mm -hmm. If that's what what my decision was going to be. Um, And again, I'm not trying to say that these officers did X or these officers did Y. I'm just thinking about the way I think about those things. I want to end with giving you both an opportunity to weigh in on this. So much has also been said about the mental health of law enforcement personnel, resources that are available to them, resources that might still be needed from your viewpoint. And does that play a role in all of this? And let's be really clear because we're in a time where not only cell phone video footage can easily be recorded, but the stress of, a pandemic, throw that in there, the stress of that we have these high-profile police-involved killings, um, how that must weigh on officers. Is there some mental health resources you all think that could be better implemented or, or provided for officers that you all might know of and that you can reflect on and when you during your time? Doug, would you take this first? <laughs> sure, Ray, I'll take this one first. Um, I think um, one of the situations or one of the things that we're looking at and always have looked at in terms of law enforcement is um, kind of the chemical hypervigilance that law enforcement has to have. On an eight-hour shift of a police officer or a 12-hour shift of a police officer, their uh, chemicals uh, into their brain are going to go up and down, up and down based on every single call that they have. If you think about in comparison to people that have been serving in the military and have gone to uh, those areas of Iraq or Iran or and and what have you, and we have some of the the consequences of people who have come back, uh, who have seen uh, extreme violence, who have seen extreme uh, sadness, et cetera. So we're dealing with a situation in which um, officers are doing that on a daily basis eight hours a day, 12 hours a day, uh, five days a week, seven days a week, whatever it is, and it goes on. So in terms of some of those things, we need to look in terms of 
how we can best address and how we can best help them mm-hmm. um, in that situation. In terms of what was available or what currently is available, um, I, I know we had uh, mental health counselors. I know that um, departments continue to have mental health counselors. Of course, there's a stigma associated with um, uh, using those resources and, and those kinds of things. So one of the things is we probably need to try to destigmatize the use of those resources and, and services. And Agent Moore, I'll give you the final word on that. Mental health Yes, um, what I want to um, talk about quickly is um, President Obama's uh, Commission on 21st Century Policing. Mm-hmm. And he had six pillars um, that they talked about that he believed could strengthen um, policing across the board. And the first one was, was um, first pillar was building trust and legitimacy, second pillar, uh, pillar, policy and oversight, third pillar, technology and social media, fourth pillar, community policing and crime reduction, fifth pillar, training and education, and then the sixth pillar was officer wellness and safety. And based on the question that you proposed, I would believe officer safety and wellness should be number one. Training and education should be number two, because I believe that helps make for a better um, police officer. As Doug said, at our agency, we had um, the EAP, Employee Assistance Program, Mm -hmm. where you could seek out counseling either internally or they would refer you to an outside counselor. Um, And it was utilized. But in my career, I probably had 10 colleagues that I knew personally that committed suicide. I don't know what the stressors that drove that, but these were people that you could see Monday through Friday. They look just as normal as you and I do now. But at a point in time during their day, they decided to take their lives. The stressors, as Doug said, that adrenaline or whatever those chemicals in their bodies told them it was better to just end it all than to work it out. And again, I have to um, go back to what Doug said. Um, People are not willing to expose themselves to counselors because of the possible ridicule um, they will get. But uh, in my agency, I was a strong proponent of referring people uh, for counseling, whether it be professional psychological counseling or ministerial counseling, it was based on where I saw them being grounded. And so um, I, I do believe the um, officer wellness and safety and the mental health of the officers uh, is vitally important. And I want to just say one more thing, Rose, because you asked about it very early in the uh, interview about de-escalation, de-escalation training. Mm-hmm. Probably about 28 states in the U.S. mandate de-escalation training. There's about another 16 or 17 that do not mandate it in state policing or in local policing where they provide funds. I think one of the elements that's in the congressional bill that's pending right now is mandatory de-escalation training across the board, across the country. That's one of the components that's being listed in that bill. So I just wanted to share that with you. Hmm. I believe in Georgia, the requirement I believe I could be wrong. Um, is one hour per year? I'll double check that because I don't want to say anything. Now. <laughs> I'll get an email, <laughs> but we will definitely uh, double check that. While wow, you all shared a lot, Ray Moore, owner of Moore and Associates Security Consultants, also a veteran Secret Service agent and also part of the presidential detail. Douglas Shipley, retired supervisory special agent with the FBI, and also served as the acting assistant special agent in charge of the Atlanta division and also experience in training and development experience with local and federal law enforcement. Thank you both for taking the time. Thank you both for sharing. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. As we continue our conversations today, a community is fed up and demands answers. 
if you don't live in this community, because they have cops that stay in this community that did not respond to that call, why is that? Those two white cops should have been in Buckhead. They shouldn't have been here because they don't know the people in this community. And they see a, a black man, they de automatically demonize him. And that is the problem. That man has three children that now have to wake up to no father. That is not okay. And they continue doing that. And they, they continue to put our children through trauma. And it's a generational curse. They have to break it, period. And the fact that we're in the blackest city in America and we still have to go through this, it tells you something is wrong. It tells you something is wrong. One of the many voices we heard from regarding the shooting death of Rayshard Brooks. And as our conversation continues now, I'm going to be joined by Youssef Salam, an advocate, speaker, author, poet, who addresses questions about race, class, the criminal justice system, legal protections for juveniles, and overall human rights. And also, you may recognize that name, Youssef Salam, also one of the five New York City teens wrongfully accused and imprisoned for the 1989 rape of a white woman in Central Park. Salam served nearly seven years for the crime, which neither he or the others committed, and later they will be exonerated, and that's why we call them the Exonerated Five. Dr. Youssef Salam, thank you so much for taking the time. As usual, I appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure, my pleasure, and thank you for having me on your show. You know, we spoke back on May 7th, and I asked you then, had you viewed the cell phone footage of Ahmad Arbery? And now for this conversation, I'm asking you, have you viewed the shooting death of Rayshard Brooks? I have, and it's one of the most disturbing and unfortunate things to see a person at the end of their life. And the, the wrongs of that the system is supposed to protect and serve us the system is supposed to provide uh, assurances and, and security for the people that they that they serve right and yet time after time after time when it comes to someone who looks like you or me we are the ones that end up a hashtag you heard coming into this conversation the clip of the young woman we went out to the community. We went out to the Windy site this past weekend. We spoke to a lot of people. So I'm going to ask you this, Yousef, when the community says they're demanding immediate action, but what does immediate action look like? Immediate action looks like justice. You know, I was listening to my hero, Malcolm X, and he was talking about the, the, the conditions of us as a people as it was then. And really, if we take that same uh, statement he made and bring it right to today, the same condition, the same thing applies. He was talking about um, this, this uh, I, I, I'm, I'm searching for a word, mm -hmm. but it's the, it's the Band-Aid placed on the wound mm -hmm. when really we need the treatment to the condition of having that knife put in our back. So we talk about the treatment, and you and I have had conversations before. Some will say the wound is, some will say racism or bias, or some will say other tentacles tied to the conditions of the community. So let's begin there. So before we yes. talk about the treatment, what's the wound here? Is the wound racism? Is the wound all these other systemic issues that have plagued, since we're talking about black folks, the black communities, even here in Atlanta? What's the wound here? Absolutely. The wound is systemic racism, systemic oppression. The wound is coming at us every single way we go. And we have been able to kind of play um, nice when it comes to living our everyday life. You know, I'm thinking about what our good uh, teacher and I want to call him a teacher at this particular point, James Baldwin said, and James Baldwin, he said, to be a Negro in this country mm -hmm. and to be relatively conscious is to be in a rage almost all the time. Mm -hmm. You see, you couple that with, with a statement like Dr. An Dr., uh, Dr. Angela Davis, who said, we as a people have historical amnesia. Now, when you think about that, context of historical amnesia i've never spoken to her I, i've never asked her what she meant by that but i assume that part of the, the dynamic that goes on with us as a people 
has a lot to do with the fact that we have been taught not to know our history. And so it's the education of the Negro by Dr. Carter G. Woodson, and it's the miseducation of the Negro by Dr. Carter G. Woodson. And so you can have a young 12-year-old standing on the corner of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard, standing on the corner of Malcolm X Boulevard, and be asked, hey, do you know who Malcolm X is? Do you know what he stood for? Do you know who Dr. Martin Luther King is? Do you know what he stood for? And not all the time, but there are cases where some of those individuals don't know who those folks are. Yusef, I hear what you're saying. And I know you've talked to a lot of young folks. I talk to young folks as well, too. And they will tell you, okay, that's fine. You want me to know my history. But how does this help me today being a young black male who's living in a situation or a plight where I feel like at any time I could have a bad interaction with police. I could have a bad interaction with someone who doesn't look like me, who's asking me to justify where I'm being. How do you get that message across to them? And they say, well, that that's fine. What Malcolm X said and James Baldwin and Dr. King and Angela Davis and all them folks. How are you going to help me get through this current situation in my community where I feel like I don't trust the police? By telling the truth. We, sh- we should not trust the police at this particular point. Why do you say that? Here's a man. I mean, we watched a video and here's this young man saying, hey, OK, I mean, I had a few drinks. Um, listen, my, my, my sister lives right over there. Mm-hmm. I will walk. I'll walk over there. I don't even have to drive. Right. And I think as we analyze the video and try to understand some of the teaching points, right, at this point, he's now a teacher. He's an ancestor, right, at such a young age, but he's a teacher as well. And at some of the, if, if, we, if we dissect the video to try to understand when did it all go wrong? We're talking about this young man living in the time of George Floyd, mm-hmm. right? This, this young man being, being live, like everything reconnecting itself to Eric Gardner. We're still crying about Emmett Till. And I'm saying that when we look at all of that and here now, I am being stopped by the police. Uh-oh, how do I survive? Mm-hmm. And I'm doing everything right. And then the officer says, and this is the part that I think is really key and crucial. The officer says, now I'm not a lawyer. Do you want to blow blow into this breathalyzer? Now he already said to the officer, by the way, I've listened to lawyers talk about police interactions and lawyers have said, I will not speak to a cop without an attorney. Mm -hmm. So the fact that they're cautioning us, right? Anything you say, the Miranda warnings, anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. He said, I had a few drinks. The officer said, so you've been drinking. The officer didn't repeat back what he said. Oh, you only had a cup and a half. He said, you've been drinking. So that means that in his report, he probably was going to write down drunk individual. He then says to the man, I want you to blow into this breathalyzer. The, the, the man said, well, what's going to happen if I, when I, if I blow into the breathalyzer? He did not give him a proper representation of what the outcome would be if he failed. If he told him, listen, if you blow into the breathalyzer and you fail the breathalyzer, I have to arrest you. I'm sorry, it's my duty. That young man might be alive today. But, but what he said was, it's either a yes or no. Do you want to blow into the breathalyzer? So, Yusef, this brings up what everyone's protesting about, obviously, which is excessive use of force, but also policing in black communities. You mm-hmm. heard the young woman coming into the segment talk about, we have black cops that live here. Why weren't those officers responding? People who live in the community, people who know the community. So when we talk about that aspect of it and training then comes into leadership and culture. 
now former police chief Erica Shields, she has stepped aside. But ultimately, the responsibility of ensuring that officers have proper training. And then beyond that, folks will say not only ensuring they have proper training, but they understand there will be consequences for misconduct or excessive use of force. So you have all of that. It has to fall under leadership. What's the accountability for the city government here, for Atlanta, for Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms? So, so you know, what justice looks like is this, right, in terms of leadership. Justice looks like righting all of the wrongs right now, meaning tomorrow is completely a different America. Mm-hmm. That's what justice looks like. At every level, right, we have silos. We have, we have people operating and saying, okay, well, we got to meet with the folks and f- try to figure out. And, of course, things are happening in a way that they have not happened in the past, right? Things are happening very, very rapidly according to the slow pace of the system in terms of trying to change the system. And then the question becomes, too, uh, after these changes are put in place, does that mean that tomorrow when the new administration gets voted in, will they do what Trump did to Obama? Right? Mm -hmm. The discussion is more than just saying it's about leadership. Because I'm a person mm-hmm. and you're a person. So what about my responsibility, my, my personal responsibility, my ability to respond in a manner that is correct, that's right and exact, that, that when I get called to judgment, right, I'm a Muslim. And I was reading the Quran this past Ramadan and something very, very powerful um, in this particular translation of the Quran, the, the Sahih International Version, popped up and what popped up was on the day it said it said it like this it said on the day of judgment all people will be arraigned i was shook because i know what arraignment is i know what it feels like to be in a courthouse waiting for the judge to say uh next case yusuf salam versus yusuf salam I'm going to be placed on trial based on my actions in this world. And the thing about it is that everybody has to know that we're all going to be held accountable because there are atrocities that have never been brought to account as it relates to 1619 and beyond. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying even before that, right, because we talk about the third right in some contexts. And I'm thinking about the third right in the context of me coming from New York, me seeing what the dynamics were in New York, me knowing that there's a community in New York that the police cannot go into without their permission. They have their own police force, the JDL, right? And so we're taught all the time, never forget. The third right, never forget. But my question, which has been posed to me is, What's the second right? And more importantly, what was the first right? How did we get to this place? We have to go all the way back and we have to connect all of the dots in order to, in order to understand that it's more than just retraining. It's more than just having a conversation with your officers. It's more than just saying we have black cops and black officers in our community. I mean, the thing is, yes, the people who, who, who volunteer to protect and serve your community, that is a sacred position. And they don't come to it with that thought in mind. But that is a sacred position. You are holding the souls and the lives of the people who you care for in your hand. And I tell you, what we've seen has been other than that. What we've seen has been business as usual. What we've seen has been, as I've called often, as American as apple pie. Based on what you just said, if we're talking about acknowledgement or reconciliation, being more than just retraining, but you're also talking about accountability of a community to maybe police itself, moving forward then, what is the solution? I think I asked you this last time. You're probably tired of me asking you this. No, is listen, it about is I it mean, about policing your own community, which some will say we, that will never work? We've seen a lot of things happen in, in the past few days. 
one of the most brilliant things that I've seen happen was my good friend Dave Chappelle dropped, was it 846? Yeah, yeah, I saw it. And, and, and I mentioned that only because what he said was the streets are responding. Mm -hmm. The streets are valid and valuable. I say all the time to young people, you are not crazy, right? My mother told me when she came into that police precinct to get me, when she pulled me aside, she said, stop talking to them. And then she gave me the most important instruction, not just for that time, but for my life and for all people's lives, which is why I tell people this story. She said, they need you to participate in whatever it is that they're trying to do. Do not participate, she said. Refuse. See, we're taught to obey the law. We're taught to obey all people in, in, in powerful positions unless they tell us to do something wrong. Mm -hmm. This is what this is the basic principle. And it's like that's life, right? We we're not crazy. If you tell me to go and shoot that man because you feared for your life, but yet you can capture a Dylan Roof. We got a problem. Because you're telling me that it's raining, but I see you peeing on me. Mm -hmm. You're telling me that you could breathe, but your foot is on my neck. And in this case, with George Floyd, your knee. With Eric Gardner, your arms. We are being strangled in America. And, and, and the worst part about it is for the rest of us, it's like a death by a thousand cuts. Advocate, speaker, author, Dr. Youssef Salam. As always, I appreciate you taking the time. My pleasure. Thank you. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelley Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash closerlook. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.